0: Welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with one of my dearest friends and favorite collaborators, Gabriel Urbina, creator and head writer of Wool 359, amongst other things. We talked about one of the greatest book series of recent memory, His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. As with most of these episodes, the spoilers are pretty minimal here, but if you haven't read the books and want to go into them with a completely blank slate, maybe skip this one. I'm not going to say too much more before we dive in, because it's really late here. I've been working on the episode for like four hours, and I've still got like several hours to go. It's 1.30 in the morning. Um, but I just want to say that I think that Gabrielle's brilliance speaks for itself here, and I'm so grateful that he shared his thoughts, and I, for one, am so excited to reread these books or re-listen to them. Oh, hey, Audible. What's up? One of the reasons I really like this episode is that I got to vocalize, even if not very profoundly, some of the less concrete and some more esoteric thoughts that I have about the relationship between art and wine, and that was really helpful for me. I hope you enjoy it as well, but in any case, it's a fun episode to listen to. Inestimable thanks go to our newest patron, Sean Braunshausen. I'm so sorry if that's not how you pronounce your name. I just really want it to be and to our advanced producer patron, Mara Zobrist. You both have adorable and ferocious demons. Demons with an A-E, not just an E. I had so much fun this past weekend going through the tasting grid of the Court of Master Sommeliers for our July live stream. If you want to find out how to blind taste wine, you can get access to that video for as little as $10 a month. And if that sounds like too much, but you'd still like to join our little Patreon community, come check us out at patreon.com pairingpodcast If all of that sounds like too much money, and as well it should, consider leaving us a priceless review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes. A special shout out to Thea, who asked us all sorts of awesome wine questions and shared thoughts on some of our episodes on Twitter, who just left us a lovely review. Thanks, Thea. I will say that if you enjoy this episode, you should follow Gabrielle on Twitter at Urbina, tm and definitely check out his newsletter, Controlled Chaos at tinyletter.com slash Urbina There's a link in the show notes. And special thanks for this episode go out to none other than Zach Valenti for his help with recording Gabrielle's audio. Follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Valenti and check out his podcast, Focused As Fuck!, I may or may not make an appearance on one of those episodes. Without further ado, here is episode 16, His Dark Materials. All right, and here we are. Tonight I am joined by the inestimable, I don't know, that's the word that came to mind, uh
1: <laughs> I am I am so confused about everything that is happening I know, right I know. now. I'm
0: not even sure what that word means in this context, but uh, I'm I'm gonna roll with it. I can't uh,
1: be esteemed a question. Mark. Uh
0: the esteemed and inestimable <laughs> Gabriel Urbina, maestro extraordinaire of oh. 350 Mine Wolf 350 Mine
1: that's that was, a different that's a different show that,
0: that is that, a different show
1: that is the sh- we zach and i Zach jack valenti that did world review with us he and i tried to do that show and that show got canceled <laughs> yeah. halfway through filming the pilot
0: real quick halfway
1: through like the silliness police from monty python came in and we're just yeah. like no nope, 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 <laughs> no 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 stop everything that you're doing nope, cut nope, it out nope. this is too, too silly. silly too silly
0: too silly too silly no we never get too silly
1: never Never. Laughter
0: never happens when we.
1: <laughs> nope. No, it's a nope. very serious affair. Very serious. Indeed.
0: Very sober and very serious. Speaking of being sober, mm-hmm. Gabrielle. You followed my instructions and brought something to drink tonight, and I'm so grateful and so proud.
1: Oh, you—you uh, you know me. I never turned down an excuse to drink.
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> and so, what are you—what are you enjoying there? It looks like some white wine.
1: I am—I am enjoying some white wine. Some um, 2012 Chardonnay.
0: Ooh, a 2012 Chardonnay. That's got mm-hmm. some age on it, actually. Oh, that's right. That's very it's nice. Quite, very classy. You. Are, I mean, I would expect no less from such a classy person.
1: From the, in, in uh, what is it, inestimable? In, in,
0: inestimable. Inestimable, yes. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am drinking a youngish red wine. I think it's a 2016. Yeah, it's a 2016 Mencia from mm. Galicia in uh, northwest Spain. So I'll talk maybe a little bit later about why I, I chose this one specifically, but I don't want to give anything away too quickly.
1: For sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Emma. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Very nice. Oh my
1: God, that was so satisfying. I know,
0: right? So we're here to talk about one of your favorite books and also one of my favorite books.
1: Not one of, for me at least, my favorite books. Your favorite books. Of all time. Of all time. Period. Full Period.
0: stop. Wow. That is saying a lot. Mm. Given, given how much I know you love books and how much I respect your opinion as a writer. So, Gabrielle, what are we going to be talking about tonight?
1: We are going to be talking about His Dark Materials by mm. Phil Pullman. And that is a trilogy of books that is comprised by... The first book is, depending on which edition you have, called either Northern Lights in the United Kingdom or yeah. The Golden Compass in the States. Uh, second book is The Subtle Knife. And the third book is The Amber Spyglass. And it's one of the rare times when I actually side with U.S. Yeah. in a literary debacle. Because I do like when all three of them are named after, like, the primary object in the books.
0: Yes. Yes. I like that, too. And actually, I'm ashamed to say that. Um, So I was Googling it because I read the books. I think I only read them once, maybe twice. But, like, you know close to 15 years ago and oh so God. there's a lot that i don't recall sure. um and so i was trying to refamiliarize myself just a little bit and one of the things i came across was that the the golden compass is called northern lights in the uk and i was like what that doesn't make That's any right. sense because there i mean it makes some sense but like for the continuity of the thing and the but yeah, and you can so you can you
1: can tell which one was written first. Yeah.
0: I I agree with you. I agree with you, Gabrielle.
1: Oh, well, thank you. That is so often just the this key once. to success and happiness.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just this once. So, why don't you tell me why these are your favorite books?
1: <sighs> oh my gosh. Where do I even begin? Um I think that
0: If it's too big a question, maybe we can begin by just talking about the books themselves. So. Sure. What's going on there?
1: So um, the books themselves are, um, one of the things that I love about the books is that they are kind of sneakily, it's kind of a bunch of genres are kind of smuggled into this trilogy. And the first Mm. book is kind of very straightforward, sort of like the story of a young girl who lives in an alternate universe to our own kind of Mm -hmm. getting wrapped up in this mystery and in this conspiracy that some nefarious people are doing involving kidnapped children. And she sort of sets out to discover what is happening and to unravel that conspiracy. And as the books move forward, all of a sudden you sort of find that as she sort of dives down that rabbit hole, she keeps finding herself in new and outrageous situations. And... You know, sometimes it'll be kind of a like much more of an Indiana Jones style adventure where, you know, they're kind of more immediately in peril. And there's a prolonged sequence in the second book where it's almost like a caper story where they need to kind of steal something without somebody noticing. And in the meantime, this kind of huge war story is kind of happening um, all around them. And it is kind of something that manages to be both enormously grandiose, but also always just kind of like laser focused on the story of this one girl in her very, Mm -hmm. very personal, very by the end, almost metaphysical journey into self discovery and maturity. Mm -hmm. And I realized that just describing it like that kind of makes it sound like such a hippie acid trip of a book, (laughs) but living it, Every single step feels so intuitive and so like the next correct escalation of what is happening to this little person and how she fits into the bigger world around her or the bigger worlds as the case eventually is.
0: Yes, indeed. And as I as I said before we started recording, I'm going to try to every so often bring up certain wine concepts or some or facts or things that i think of um, just because that's you know the point of this podcast in theory yes um, <laughs> but but one wait, of the things wait what
1: my my agent didn't tell me anything yeah. about that before we did this well it's either going to be that happening? or
0: we're just going to be drinking wine while we talk about it and either one works
1: no 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 but please concept me and so
0: one of the one of the things that i thought of is you know you talk about these different worlds colliding and that's something that very much happens in the wine the wine world quote unquote where there's hmm. many different schools of thought there's many different wine regions in the world and i think that as kind of the the world gets smaller so to speak and it's easier for us to access different different places and different traditions and, oh, and yes. stuff like that I think one one thing that's pretty cool is that there's a lot of intersection and intersectionality between different schools of thought in the wine world. And so, you know, you'll have American winemakers who go study in France or Australian winemakers who go study in California or something like that. And so there's a lot of cool intersection um, going on. Um, and so that's that's just one thing I thought of, which is kind of kind of kind of neat. Absolutely. And so another thing that we were talking about, and one thing that I'm intrigued by and that I was thinking about is, you know, where we were in our lives when we first read these books. Because I remember where I was, but I'm curious about where you were.
1: Well, I think that's actually, it actually has a lot to do with my fondness for these books. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've read interviews with Phil Pullman, the author, where he talks about I, 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 he kind of doesn't know who reads these books. Right, He's like, right. they're marketed as children's books and YA books, and that's not entirely wrong, mm-hmm. but it's also not quite right either. Yeah. And he sort of said, I think that these are really, really books for precocious 15 year olds. Like, yeah. that's the mark, that's the that's target perfect. audience. Um, like that. and that's when I that's exactly when I read them I read them when I was a 15 year old
0: and you certainly were a precocious 15 year old <laughs> uh, I don't
1: I don't know if I was a precocious 15 year old but I was a pretentious 15 year old <laughs> um, which sounds similar and is therefore very yes. t- close in concept yes no and I sort of remember kind of like I was in that era where um, I was starting to mature a little bit and starting to switch my artistic gears a little bit mm-hmm. and kind of like what I was starting to look for in art. I was trying to figure out what it was a little bit more. Right. Um. And I was kind of hitting that phase where I still completely adored the Harry Potter books. Right. But I was starting to kind of develop a little bit of that complex of like, well, maybe I shouldn't like them quite so much. Mm. Maybe... Maybe they're a little bit beneath me, which no, that's utter nonsense. They're so great.
0: But I totally, I totally relate. Like there's, I was also a pretentious teenager. And so definitely wanted to be perceived as, you know, highly intellectual for my, for my age.
1: And at the time, somebody, I don't know who it was um, that set me on this track. But somebody kind of mentioned, oh, if you're looking for something that's kind of like young fantasy that is way more mature and way better written mm-hmm. and way more sort of accomplished than Harry Potter is, mm-hmm. which I don't agree on all those counts, but I think that sure. it is kind of a a book that has very different priorities than Harry Potter. Absolutely. Um, They recommend it as dark materials. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was love within the first two chapters. Yeah. Like I just remember feeling so intoxicated by the language and so just like taken in by what is happening. And I just remember sort of compared to a lot of other books that are kind of aimed at like early teens, which usually have like a little bit more of a gradual ramp up and a little bit more of a kind of, You know, here is someone's life, and here is the way in which slowly weirdness starts to creep in over the first five chapters. Right. His Dark Materials just opens, and you're like, what is happening? Like, you know, you just open on, like, this girl sneaking in to hear this meeting between all these adults. And they're talking about all these things that are going over her head, and they're kind of also going over your head. And then she's seeing that, like, her uncle is being poisoned by this other person.
0: That's right. Oh my
1: god! And and a friend of mine who is considerably smarter than me is such a sort thing of, possible? No, it's very, <laughs> very possible. Once pointed out that like the first chapter of his Dark Materials kind of opens on a statement that just kind of like completely sets the stage for the drama that the trilogy as a whole kind of unfolds mm-hmm. because you sort of open with Lyra. She lives at this college in Oxford and she is kind of a a ward of the master of the college Mm -hmm. who is sort of this very, very, very kind of nice, kindly, gentle, welcoming old man. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that you see is sort of, you know, the master is nice to Lyra Mm -hmm. and then she sees the master poisoning her uncle, who then her uncle comes in. And her uncle is so mean and so rough and so just like completely so not what just like treats her so roughly from Mm -hmm. the beginning and is so not a comforting presence. Mm -hmm. And she was like, this is a book about sort of a child seeing the good guy doing something evil Mm. to the bad guy yeah, and wondering why and not understanding why it's happening. Yeah. And sort of inadvertently getting involved and trying to figure out what is going on right. and why that is happening. And I was just like, yeah, that that is kind of what is at the root of it of just kind of like we're going to try to understand why good people do bad things, yeah. why sort of like, you know, all of this kind of comes together and that is sort of the journey of like becoming mature and growing up and gaining perspective.
0: Absolutely. It's funny. I've been talking a lot recently about good people doing bad things, um, mm-hmm. which has context both in my personal life and also in just some of the media i've consumed recently that seems to be a theme right now and i don't know i don't know what that means but <laughs> <laughs> but 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 i but i totally agree with you and i think that's a very you know in a quote-unquote young adult novel that's a very adult mature concept to deal with that right. and i think you're right like sort of at the time that those books were popular and came out that the the other main popular one was Harry Potter, which again to compare them is they're they're very different and they have very different purposes I think and intentions, um, and so I don't think it's entirely fair to compare one to the other, but I do think that some of the the themes that his Dark Materials deals with are much more subtle, so to speak, like like a knife. Absolutely. Um, funny story though. I remember I was actually, I think I was a bit younger when I first read them. I think I was, I think I was like 12, 12, hmm. 12 or 13. Yeah. No, so I you think you'd have
1: been Lyra's age. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, I really connected with it at the time. And I don't think I, at the time that I read them, I don't think. I was thinking of myself as super hoity-toity. i I rem- <laughs> <laughs> I actually remember I, I, I,
1: unlike some people. Yes that can yes mention. yes,
0: mm. um, but I actually remember I read them right after I read the Lord of the Rings for the first time because I was oh wow. I was like hungry for more. I think I right. I like I read the Lord of the Rings. I reread the Lord of the Rings almost immediately, and then I was like, "Okay, I can't reread them a third time. I need right. We need like, some. We
1: need some variety. I need
0: some variety." And um, and I went to His Dark Materials and The Golden Compass, and it was such a different take on fantasy. It's somewhere but a little bit more between fantasy and sci-fi, and also f- yes, felt more grounded in the real world than the Lord of the Rings, um, which. I really liked.
1: Well, and I think that one of the things that Pullman does that is absolute genius is that it is a world of fantasy. Mm -hmm. But I think that one of the operational principles of it is this is a parallel universe to the one in which we live in. Right. And everything in this universe has some counterpart in our own. Yes. even the things that seem very outlandish um all sort of have something that can be kind of traced as like okay this is kind of in our world we developed electricity in this world they developed umbaric power right um in this world we sort of have this like concept of personality and force of individuality and that is something that we see as internal in this world that is something that is like embodied by external physical manifestations in the forms of animals. But there's nothing that is just kind of like, oh, and by the way, in this universe, some people just shoot lightning from their
0: fingertips. (laughs) Zap!
1: You don't really see a lot of that in his Dark Materials until things get, like, really metaphysical at the end of the series. Right, right. But it kind of earns that by, for so long, kind of being, this is a world that is... Grounded. And everything here is just a alternative to the mm-hmm. developments that have happened in the world that you are familiar
0: yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. So another wine thing that this makes me think of is, so speaking of like different worlds colliding with each other, mm-hmm. like the main kind of divide in the wine world. I mean, that's maybe not fair to say, but overgeneralization between old world wines, which are European wines And New World Wines, which are, like, wines of the United States and South America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, even though South Africa has been making wine forever. Like, these places have been making wine forever, but for some reason they're called New World Wines. And one thing that I found very interesting—so this is a very specific, weird example—but sometimes people— who are making New World wines feel a little insecure, maybe like we did when we were precocious and pretentious 15-year-olds. That they're not like the the classic, you know, old world wine producers.
1: I have no idea what you're talking yes, about. Yes, I, I know, I know.
0: Um, so, so sometimes new world winemakers will say oh this is my homage to such and such famous winemaker in france ah, or this is my my take on such and such famous wine from italy you know so so hmm. so, so things like that and one one that comes to mind recently there's a there's a winery in california called bedrock and they make a rosé they're they're a fantastic winery they make fantastic fantastic wine and it's pretty unique to to where they are but their rosé they call an homage to this very famous rosé in bandol in provence in france which is kind of considered the best region for Mm rosé and uh, that one is called tempier so that's just i don't know that's just one thing that i sort of thought of of like these different worlds that are slightly doing things slightly differently and also why I was thinking of this and this I did not know and I don't know if you know this um, but in my googling I mm-hmm. I found that and I'm sure you do know this and I just didn't because I was again I was 12 years old when I read these books so I didn't even have an awareness of this but apparently a lot of the books are a reference to paradise lost
1: to the milton yeah, yeah to
0: milton which i did not know and i think it's yeah, a the... really cool usurping and different take on that sort of story and those themes
1: oh absolutely and um his dark materials is a quote from paradise lost
0: which i did not know and yes. and didn't or maybe i did know but i didn't know enough about Paradise Lost to like care or make that connection. Cause I don't think I read Paradise Lost until I was in college.
1: You know, I've yet to read Paradise Lost eh. and that is sort of, that is something that like, I feel a non zero amount of shame about.
0: You know, it's one of those things you're, you're supposed to read it in air quotes and I read it in college and, uh, there's some beautiful language in it. There's some beautiful imagery it i can understand why it's influential but i did not find it particularly uh evocative well maybe maybe that's not the right word particularly con- i didn't connect with it in
1: you know i have a bad track record with my favorite artists going this is the book that changed my life. This is my right. absolute favorite thing. And right. if anybody wants to understand what is happening in my head, go and read this thing. Right. I have tried to do that because a lot of my favorite creators have talked and sort of have said things like that. And more often than not, I sort of find myself like really not liking the books that they yep. love yep. or really kind of struggling to get through them. Yep. Um, you know, um, I think that like Joss Whedon, who you know how – Yes. deep my love for Joss Whedon runs yes. has said on multiple occasions that the most important book that he ever read was um, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, La Nose. Mm. Um And I've tried to read that book probably four times over the course of my yeah. life and I just cannot get through it. I, it just does not make sense to me the way that it clearly makes sense to him. I
0: totally relate and thinking like, you know, again, like feeling this need this is something that I felt growing up that I've mostly gotten over but not entirely of like to be perceived as intellectual and you know know all the great works and all that and and finding sometimes that I just don't like them and some some of them I do some of them I do but some of them and you know when you idolize someone or at least for me when I idolize people I want to love all the things that they love it's almost like when you have a crush on somebody and yeah. and you like are like, oh, you like this thing? I totally like this thing, too. Yeah, I totally I love will this totally thing. I totally
1: listen to that Metallica CD <laughs> yeah. that you love so much. I love Metallica. Hey,
0: don't hate on Metallica, I'm all about the mosh pits.
1: <laughs> no, I absolutely 100% get it. And yeah. I actually, I think that... His Dark Materials, that's another one of the things that I love about these books. I think that so often you find yourself either sacrificing entertainment and accessibility mm-hmm. for in favor of intellectual loftiness, yeah, or you sort of find yourself reading something that is really entertaining and a real page-turner, but which is the intellectual equivalent of one of the Fast and Furious movies.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah. Totally.
1: And I think that... One of the fantastic things about his Dark Materials is that for me, it really strikes the perfect balance between those two things.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: Because it is sort of, you know, when you think about it, like, you know, the questions that the book is asking are questions of why have we let religion and specifically kind of Christian organized religion Mm -hmm. program us the way that it has? Why has this become sort of our moral codifier For 4,000 years. Right. Why have we sort of developed these incredibly, at best, regressive, at worst, violent and transgressive ideas about sexuality. Right. Through this religion. And how do we sort of reconcile existing in a universe where a majority of people believe that a, you know, kind of very repressive tyrannical figure is an omnipotent autocrat right um like these are the things that this book is asking like these are sort of like the subjects that it is handling but it does such a bloody good job of never lecturing about them Mm -hmm. always dramatizing them always kind of setting them in motion yeah always kind of going at them with this idea of I'm never going to stop and give you a lecture about this. I'm always going to just put it into what the characters are doing. Right. And because you're just following them and getting involved in their story, it feels breathlessly entertaining, at least to me. Like I just yeah. get so swept up in them. And like the best books, I don't think about the lofty ideas until the book is over.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and in thinking about it, you know, I don't think I had too much of an awareness. I mean, I think I was – Aware enough when I was reading the books of of sort of the some of the bigger picture ideas and questions and there and there's a lot of pretty obvious references to Christianity yes. as, as we know it and so that that was enough to like let me know but it's again it's not done with a heavy hand and it's not no. and it's not trying to be didactic it's not trying to tell you one thing one way or the other or. Maybe it is. I don't remember. But it doesn't feel that way. It feels more nuanced. Yes. It feels like a more nuanced kind of way to tell a story. And, again, driven by characters that you really care about, which I think is really yes. important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I had another I had another wine thought, but I think I've lost uh-huh. it. I think I've lost it in the wine. Um.
1: <laughs> well, while you ponder, yes. I think that the other balance Mm -hmm. that Philip Pullman just like does so effortlessly and which I've been thinking a lot about recently and which I was actually like really paying attention to in my most recent reread of these books Mm -hmm. is I think that he really understands the distinction between mature topics Mm -hmm. and a mature register mm-hmm. um, yes. because I think so often we sort of get this idea that like children's books have to deal with immature topics right? Um, or children's books cannot deal with kind of like really, really mature, really heavy topics. Right. And I think that this is one of the best examples of like, no, 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 no. There is a distinction between having to, you know, sort of like stay away from certain topics because they're not for children and sort of being able to have a register that is accessible yes. and which is presentable to children. Um, I think that Phil Pullman and actually the folks at Pixar are the two, like, undisputed masters of this. Absolutely. And I think that the same way that Up, for example, is a movie that mm-hmm. it's dealing with some really, really heavy subject matter, but it is kind of doing it in a way where it's it isn't overwhelming, it isn't so deepen the weeds of the subject matter that a child can't follow it right but it doesn't necessarily pull the punch of no but this is a really really heavy really mature subject
0: no absolutely i and i agree 100 percent. and i and i am now remembering my my wine thought which is mm. something something that i've talked about before a lot of a lot of these themes are applicable i think because i do think of winemaking as sort of an art in its own way
1: Oh, it absolutely is. Yes. It absolutely is.
0: It's a science and it's both a science and an art. And so.
1: Much like podcasting.
0: Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) I've yet to master the science of podcasting, but. (laughs) It's
1: okay. You make up for it with all the art. Oh, thank
0: you. And as we were talking about earlier, my art mostly consists of. Photographs of my cat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but okay. But um, winemaking. But winemaking,
0: winemaking as an art form. So basically, there's, you know, I was thinking again about. I keep coming back to this, this whole idea of like being, uh, I guess, of lofty ideas, overtaking accessibility. Um, yeah. And and I really like what you're talking about. The difference between mature content and a mature register, and because I think that. Some of my favorite wines are wines that are, like, expertly made, but not—but they're not messing with anything too much, you know? Like, right. You know, and they're—the thing that drives me nuts it, working in the wine world sometimes is that I've, I work with all of these, you know, very pretentious people who—whom <laughs> <laughs> I love, mostly, um, who, you know, whatever the quote-unquote it wine is— you know that's what they're really into so like orange wine for example is something is like the big trend nowadays the last time i was in brooklyn hmm. i went i went into so many wine stores like tiny tiny wine stores that so much of their inventory was orange wine and i was like this is such a small project or like such a small part of the winemaking world. Why do you have like 30 of them here? And basically orange wine, uh, someone described orange wine to me really well. It's kind of the opposite of rosé in that rosé is like um, it's made from usually red grapes, but made in a white wine style. Right. While orange wine is made from white grapes, but made in a red wine style. So mm. so rosé, the red grapes, they sit on their skins very, very briefly before they're pressed. Um, and that's yeah. what gives them just that little bit of pigment. And then orange wines are white wines that sit on their skins for a really, really long time. And that gives them a little bit this kind of like orange color. Whoa. And it's a super geeky. And, and like orange wines are awesome. But, like, they're such a small part of the wine world, and so many people are just, like, obsessed with them. And that's, that's just one example. But I'm like, okay, yes, orange wines are cool, but there's a lot more out there. And, right. like, I'd rather than get, like, self-obsessed over the really cool thing that you did. I'd rather have, like, a wine like I'm drinking right now, which is, like, just really well-made. And it's not simple, but it's
1: mm-hmm.
0: straightforward, I It's guess. not
1: doing backflips to show off.
0: Exactly. Well put. And I feel right. like a lot of winemakers are trying to do backflips to show off. And it's cool if you're doing backflips to see, you know, how many backflips you can do or something. You know, I, I really like experimentation in both art and wine and life and whatever, it's when it becomes for the sake of doing something cool that I don't like it or I don't trust mm. it, if that makes sense. And I feel like the His Dark Materials series is a series that very much is creative and pushes the envelope in many ways. Um, the creative envelope, it, it, it does things with the genre that hadn't been done before, but it never feels forced it, as no. you said, it feels very natural. And that's because I think it follows the characters.
1: And I think because Poolman has the confidence that comes from knowing what you want to do. And just kind of being confident in this is the project. This is the goal. This is the aim. Yes. And whoever is going to like it will like it. Right. And I am so not interested in showing off. And then convincing anyone else that is not going to be on board with it. Right. To do it. Yeah. Um, Which I guess goes back to sort of like what we were saying before. Of kind of like him being like, this is for the pretentious 15-year-old. That was the only <laughs> yeah. person that I was trying to reach. <laughs> and it was like, I just did not care about anyone else.
0: That's perfect.
1: But yeah, no, it is a very... You know, and I was thinking earlier today about... You can sort of feel... The influence, not just of Milton, but definitely the influence of Tolkien mm-hmm. and of C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and of a lot of other literature. Um, I, on my most recent read-through, was sort of like, I see a lot of kind of tonal echoes of Jane Austen because I've read a lot more Jane Austen cool. than I had since yeah. the last time that I had read his dark materials. Oh, yeah. But it's a, it's something that is so uniquely its own Mm -hmm. and so not trying to just cram another story into the tolkien sandbox or not trying to do say um what lev grossman's the magicians series Uh does Uh which is so clearly a take on narnia and a deconstruction of narnia right um and nothing against lev grossman's the magicians that is a very very have, accomplished series. I have in lots many of ways. feelings
0: about Lev Grossman's magicians, but they can wait. That isn't that, that's for, for another <laughs> that is for another pairing. for another pairing podcast episode. episode. Yes.
1: This just feels like it's all going into the mix and it's all just like getting very effortlessly put through the filter of Philip Pullman. Yeah. And kind of just very much emerging naturally as his own particular creation. And I have yeah. just like I'd, and that is I think, like, exactly the kind of writer that I would love to be one day. Just sort of someone that, if you've read the things that have influenced me, you can kind of go like, oh, yes, there's this element from this, and there's this element of this, and there's his Joseph Heller obsession, and there's his, you know, this other thing that he really likes. But it all is sort of, it doesn't ever feel like you're just kind of, like, trying to have a take on any particular author. Right. Or having to have a take on any particular tradition. Right. Or trying to make a point about any sort of like fantasy trope or fantasy series or yeah. fantasy author.
0: And I think that's the mark of a truly great artist in whatever medium. You know, we are all obviously influenced by whatever we've read, created, created. You know, whatever whatever you're working in. But when all of that combines within yourself and becomes uniquely your own, I think that's what really sets some people apart. Absolutely. Yes. I think that that definitely is the case for Philip Pullman and absolutely is the case for Gabrielle Rubina. No. <laughs>
1: okay. So I, have a, so I have a his dark materials question for you, Yes. I'm. Which you can pro- you've probably guessed and maybe already did some okay. thinking about. Yes. Okay. Um, Go for it. But what would your demon yes, be? Yes,
0: I thought that's what you'd say. So... Um.
1: And maybe we should we should say what a demon is? I think we yeah. kind of got okay. yeah. at let's, it a little bit let's, earlier. Let's
0: talk about what a demon is and...
1: So, yeah. So, in the world of his dark materials, the protagonist lives in this, we were talking earlier, an alternative version of the universe in which we live in. Mm-hmm. And sort of the primary difference between her world and ours is that in her world, every person is born with an... It's not an animal companion. It's an animal expression of who they are. Mm -hmm. And it is very much made clear, kind of like, this is... They're not separate entities. It is a single person in... Two bodies, one human and one animal. And sort of one of the brilliant things about it is that when a person is a child, the um, the animal companion, the, or as the book calls him, the demon, mm-hmm. is constantly changing shape depending on how the child is feeling. Mm-hmm. So if a child is feeling overwhelmed and scared and like he just kind of wants to sort of go into a corner and not be noticed by anyone, the demon might become sort of like a tiny little mouse. Mm-hmm. Or if they're feeling very brave and bold and like they want everyone to look at them, the, the demon might become a lion and sort of, you know, just like roar its way through the playground. Right. Um, and steadily, there will be certain animals that your demon spends more and more time as those animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, usually around puberty, the demon will stop changing. Like, it'll just kind of settle permanently into one creature. Mm -hmm. And that is then kind of seen as a sign of, first of all, you have now matured into the person that you're going to be because you have kind of gone from a fountain of endless possibilities and kind of a, like, almost Schrodinger-esque superposition of all (laughs) these different people. The waveform has collapsed, and now you're just, like, one single thing. Right. Right. But it's also a um, a very sort of like quick shorthand expression of who you are. And uh, as a character building tool, I love it. It's just, oh, it's, it's such a, terrific. it makes me seethe with jealousy because it's one of those things that like, you will never know so much about every little side character in any other book the way that you do in his dark materials. Because a character shows up and their demon is a dog, and you already yes. you get so much about that person yes. just by the fact that their demon is a Doberman. That's or amazing. Or if they, or if another person shows up and their demon is a gorilla, it's like okay, you know, this is then this is a very different person from the guy with the Doberman. And if somebody shows up and their demon is a snake, it's like all right, that's different from the Doberman person and from the gorilla man. And yes, and it is. I think that like every single person that reads these books, especially if you're reading them at an age when you are not yet sort of in a place where you consider yourself kind of a like done adult. If you are still in the, to use the Buffy metaphor, feeling more like cookie dough rather than like cookies. Right. Yes.
0: (laughs) You spend
1: the entire time that you're reading the books mentally wondering what would my demon be? And what would one's, what, what what am I, which is my animal expression.
0: Absolutely. And I, I love it as a storytelling device. And I also like reading it as a kid. It's just, it's another way to really bring you into the story. Absolutely. And, and engage you and, and invoke your imagination in a really unique way. It's, it's a much more fully fleshed version of, I think the idea of the Patronus. Um, in Harry yes, Potter. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely.
0: Um, much more, much more nuanced and in depth. But that's sort of like the same general kind of concept, except yeah. that the demon is with you at all times, and.
1: But but it's true. You see people online having like in depth discussions about what what would their patronus yeah. be, and you're just kind of like, oh baby, uh,
0: we need <laughs> like, you know. we need to start the Buzzfeed quiz. What would your demon be? And I'm
1: I'm I'm sure that there's some I'm out sure there, they, but like, sure. yeah, like every time that I see sort of like someone like really having an argument with someone about like what their patronus would be, I'm just kind of like, oh, you, once you read these books, you're going to have the like grown up version of this discussion. Yes,
0: absolutely. So this brings me to part of the very superficial reason why I chose this wine that uh-huh. I'm drinking, um, which you can't, you obviously can't see if you're just listening to this, but I'm going to try to show you, Gabrielle. So. On this on this label,
1: oh yeah, there's there's yes,
0: so there's like a it, it looks like kind of like Sancho Panza or something, um, but he's got on his shield or maybe more like Don Quixote, but on his shield there is a cat, and okay, um, okay, and this quickly became one of my favorite wines because I obviously bought it because there's a cat on it and I had to try it,
1: of course, but it, of it turns
0: course. out it's a fabulous wine. This is Paso de Monterrey's Mencia. Um, So, again, northern Spanish red wine. So today I was like, oh, you know, because I was thinking about demons and like I was trying to make a connection. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, my demon would totally be a cat. Right. So I so I got it. And, you know, that's like my favorite first answer because I love cats not just because I'm you know obsessed with my cat but because I do feel like a sort of connection with cats like I really like you know I have need for affection and love sometimes but then like when I want to be alone you better leave me the fuck alone and so that's I I relate to cats very much on that level um and one
1: of the main characters in the series their demon is a cat
0: I don't remember well well Lyra isn't her her demon? No,
1: Lyra's, Lyra's is not a cat. No. No.
0: But I don't remember whose demon is a cat because... Will's demon is a cat. Ah, yes. that makes perfect sense. I told you I don't remember a lot about these books, but having this conversation is making me so excited to reread them with much more knowledge than I had when I was 12 years old. Um, but I probably will enjoy them equally as much. But I kinda wanna say like like a panther or something would yeah. be my would be my demon.
1: I, I, I buy that. All right. I buy that. And
0: quick sidebar, I was really upset when I took the Patronus quiz on Pottermore because so I'm I'm a Slytherin who's in denial that I'm a Slytherin. Um, uh-huh. and I took the Pottermore quiz. I've taken the Pottermore house sorting quiz um like many times and always gotten Slytherin, which as someone who thought I was a Ravenclaw forever is very sort of the upsetting. But then
1: Well as this, as the series taught us, the sorting hat takes what you want to be into it's consideration. True. It's so... true.
0: It's true. But when I took the Petrotus quiz, I got an adder. I was like, mm. Are you kidding? Are <laughs> you kidding? <laughs> How much more slitherin y can I possibly slither? <laughs> yeah. I feel that like
1: Pottermore is just like, I figured this person out, like I just
0: got it. Yes. Um, okay, so, Gabrielle, what would your demon be?
1: Um, I've always thought that my demon would be a wolf. I see that. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Not yep. just
1: for the show connections with the audio right. drama yes. that we've No, no, no. But no, but I think that's sort of something that is like kind of almost sort of a domesticated animal, but just like right. one step back from that. I'm like, yep, that feels kind of correct to me.
0: Yes. That feels right to me too. No. Oh, well I'm glad. Um wolf is also something that I considered because I love wolves and am fascinated and terrified by them. But <laughs> <laughs> that,
1: that 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 is the correct way to be around wolves. Yes. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> that is true. That is true. So okay, so we've we've talked about our demons. Not those demons, but you know, the demons. Yes. we'll talk about our demons later that's a a different show (laughs) that's that's after we stop recording this has gotten me so excited to reread the books but is there are there any closing thoughts is are there anything is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in term in regards to these books
1: um I would say particularly Mm -hmm. if you are inclined to listen to audio fiction and given that you are mm-hmm. listening to us in a podcast I suspect that some of you may be yes if you are at all curious and you have not read these books or you're just looking to reread them and want to give it a different shot the audiobooks for his dark materials are absolutely astoundingly good um, because first of all they have Philip Pullman who wrote the books narrating Um, So you sort of get like his authoritative voice and you sort of, and unlike some authors, he is actually a good, very like strong storyteller. Like he could read, Mm -hmm. he's the kind of person that like, he kind of has, he's not quite up there with Neil Gaiman who could read you the phone book and you would sit there mesmerized for hours. Right, Um, right. (laughs) But some writers, you sort of get a little bit of that feeling of like, okay, there's a reason why you do the writing and not the reading. Um yes. But he is actually a very, very, very good reader. Excellent. But on top of that, the entire voice work is all fully cast. So anytime that it is not the narrator speaking, you actually have a full cast of actors delivering Lyra's lines and Lord Asriel's lines and um, Mrs. Coulter's lines and uh, yeah. Yorick Berninson's lines and so on and so forth. And they're all wonderful, really well cast actors for including some, you know, some actors that have to kind of make their way through some like very tricky material once it gets like right. really outro and really like fantastical. And it is just like wonderfully produced, really well put together, just kind of like, That like really, really outstanding balance. I feel that just like we keep coming back to just like how well balanced these books are. Yeah. But it is a fantastic balance between just uh, straight reading of the books and kind of a dramatization of them in the audiobook form.
0: I, for one, I don't know if it's because I come from a dramatic theatrical background. I, as long as it is well cast and well done, I very much love audiobooks that cast the characters. I do too. Um, and it's not just one narrator. I do too. Similarly, um Winston has been listening to and I've been sort of listening to by proxy um Brian Jakes Redwall. Hmm. And it's a it's a similar thing because Brian Jakes read reads the narrator's role, but then the other roles are um are other actors. And I really really enjoy that and now I'm really excited to with my Several Audible credits. Oh, yes. Download the His Dark Materials trilogy. Um, P.S. Audible, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, uh, hit me up, pairingpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, I, and I think that's... I the, I certainly will be doing that because I'm really excited to reread or re experience these books.
1: And and they're very layered and you pick up on so many different things reading them absolutely. later on in life than you did when you were reading them earlier. And
0: what was I gonna say? I got distracted because I think I'm hearing thunder. It's been it's been quite stormy here mm. in Colorado. Oh yes. I was gonna say that um so they're making a, I believe, is it a it's,
1: a mini make series? A, I believe a mini series, yes.
0: which I'm trepidatious but optimistic for because we'll the the movie The Golden Compass was pretty bad. A,
1: a, an outstanding cast, yes. Um, like hard to think of people that were better suited to those um roles than the ones that they got, and I think that they had an. They had an unbelievable stroke of brilliance with the little girl that they cast as Lyra. Yeah, I think yeah, Dakota yeah, Blue yeah. Richards did a... She was that person. That's the way right. that, like... Yeah,
0: she totally Ivana was. Ivana
1: Lynch is Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter films. Right. But beyond that, yes, not a good film at all. No.
0: Yep. Really disappointing. Very much so. Really, really, really disappointing. Um, but unlike your experience will be if you read these books... Or if you've already read them and reread them, you will have a tremendous experience. And let us hope that the miniseries will uh, will live up to our expectations.
1: Oh, fingers crossed! The expectations uh, are crossed. high, but I know maybe they'll know. pull it off.
0: I know. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for talking to me about this. This has my been my pleasure. Really wonderful conversation to have, and has given me lots of thoughts to think about, um, which is, you know. Always a good thing. Always good to keep the the thoughts thinking.
1: For sure, for sure.
0: <laughs> Gabriel, is there anything that you would like to plug?
1: Oh, um you can follow me on Twitter at mm-hmm. Gabriel, spelled like Gabriel, G-A-B-R-I-E-L, Urbina, spelled U R B I N A. And then all of that together, and then at the end just stick a T M as in trademark. So Gabriel Urbina, TM, that's the handle on Twitter. And there you'll see all about, um, I write a microfiction story blog and I write a newsletter and I'm working on some new and interesting things, but really the best way to just like get all of that is to just hit that subscribe button on Twitter and then it'll all go your way.
0: Just do it. Just do it. It will make your day brighter whenever you check your Twitter and see Gabriel's updates. I promise.
1: No. Well, thank you.
0: And also, um, you know, if you haven't already, selfishly for me as well. Oh, yes. um, You should definitely listen to Wolf 359. Do the
1: thing. Emma's so good in it.
0: Uh, I'm okay. Gabrielle makes me seem much better than I am.
1: Emma is amazing.
0: (laughs) And also, we collaborated on one other thing. We did. We did. Many, many years ago, um, a a kind of one-off narration, audio drama piece. Yep. Uh, for the podcast anthology. A
1: spooky kind of ghost yes. ghost ship sort of a story, yes. yes.
0: Film noir-esque.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Kind of like kinda old period noir ghost boat story. Yes. Another one of those, I know.
0: Based on
1: Los Buques Suicidantes.
0: Right, by Horacio Quiroga. That's right. Yeah. Ah. It's all coming back.
1: And you it's can listen back. to that by looking up Anthology Podcast by Rachel Liu. Yes. And look for it. The, uh, the story, I believe, is titled Across the Sea.
0: It is indeed. Well, Gabrielle, it's always a pleasure to collaborate with you and talk with you. And uh, thank you so much for being here.
1: Anytime, Emma. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yay. Well, cheers. Cheers. Pairing was created, produced, hosted, and edited by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. If you'd like more information, links, and clarifications on what we talked about this episode, please check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, read, drink, and be merry.